Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition on the American Shoreline podcast dedicated to the newest federal holiday declared just this week, establishing Juneteenth as a national federal holiday, the 11th federal holiday, uh, recognized by the United States government. It's a huge day, very important for a lot of people around the country. That's right, Peter. Today is a day of celebration around the country and here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, what a cause to celebrate. And uh, Peter, I'm, I'm reminded of a year ago, our show that we did with Linda Jan Lewis, the icon uh, from here in Central Texas. And we are fortunate to have Linda on the show now for this special introduction to get her reaction to this new federal holiday designation. Linda, welcome to this special show and tell us what you think about our newest federal holiday. Uh, thank you. Thank you, audience. I think that our new federal holiday has, in the words of the songs, been a long time coming. But uh, Juneteenth, is an American holiday. Uh, it's a celebration of freedom. It's a celebration of the federal government going state to state and enforcing the Emancipation Proclamation two and a half years after the president signed it. And making Juneteenth a national holiday I think is also instructive of what Americans need to learn about how government works. Just because somebody signs a piece of paper and says this is the law, the law needs to be enforced. So I think it's wonderful. I think that all Americans are now going to learn what we Americans who have our African descendants uh, have have known. It it is an incredible holiday, and as you you said, the president signed the Emancipation Proclamation, President Lincoln, January first, eighteen sixty three. But it wasn't until June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five, when Major General Gordon Granger showed up in Galveston, Texas, and announced to. Texans and to the uh, enslaved people of Texas that they were in fact free. And that's what this celebration is all about and why it's such a huge deal. As, a, as you say, it's an American holiday. This was the extension of freedom to millions of Americans who had been denied that through our history. It's, a, it's, a, it's worthy of a federal holiday and it's just a real thrill to talk to you. Linda. Yes, and, and absolutely, Peter and Todd. The other thing is that uh, Although history records some of it, here's the other part of it from my family standpoint. Uh, as you know, Texas was a republic from 1836 to 1846 when it joined the Union. And the reason Texas was a republic is because the black president of Mexico outlawed slavery and allowed runaway slaves to come to Mexico uh, during those ensuing years. So Texas was a slaveholding state. It entered the Union as a slaveholding state, and 
uh, just like today's voting rights, it was the last one of the last ones to end slavery. I am a fifth generation proud descendant from the Stroud Plantation. The plantation existed uh, before Texas became a state. Uh, there were the, the uh, original Stroud came from Georgia. And he had two sons, and the Stroud Plantation was huge. It went from Wortham, Texas, down to Bryan College Station. Uh, it included what is in now Texas, uh, four counties, uh, Limestone County, Freestone County, Falls County, and Robertson County. And I'm told a little piece of uh, McLennan County, a little east of McLennan County. The Strouds had hundred, uh, between 100 and 150 slaves. And just like in slavery, it was an enterprise. So they subcontracted out their slaves to smaller plantations. And uh, there were several plantation houses, but the one called Pleasant Grove, Pleasant Grove for the slave masters, not the slaves, uh, is on Lake Mahaya, uh, what we descendants know as Comanche Crossing. And that's where the huge Juneteenth celebrations have been going on since the end of slavery. The Strouds were very influential politically, and the Union soldiers also came to the Stroud Plantation and read the Emancipation Proclamation, gathered all the slaves, letting them know that they were free. My ancestors. Uh, some of the freed, freedmen established Booker T. Washington Park. My ancestors, my grandmother says that her grandmother told them that all of the descendants of the Stroud Plantation should forever come back to that place at Juneteenth to honor our freedom. So I grew up going to uh, Lake Mahair, Booker T. Washington Park, Comanche Crossing, and the big house is still there. It's a marvelous place because it's all of the aspects and iterations of blackness. There was a church service. There was a juke joint. There were uh, food stands. The men were barbecuing and frying fresh fish. The women came uh, a week early and made those wonderful pies and cakes and real potato salad. Um, so I grew up as a child going to my family's Juneteenth celebration uh, in what we call Comanche Cross in uh, Booker T. Washington Park. Because I have a talent, I really do. My gift is being in the right place at the wrong time. Uh, I work for two Texas governors. I work for Texas Governor Bill Clements. Um, and so State Representative Al Edwards uh, uh, just was persistent. And when uh, Juneteenth was uh, signed into law as a Texas holiday in 1979, and the first um, celebration was at the Texas Capitol in uh, 1980. I was on Governor Clement's staff, uh, on his program and management staff. And uh, come on, guys, it was in 1980. So I was the only one in the particular office. 
and I had the honor of drafting the wording for the drop proclamation that Governor Clements signed. And uh, in the years I lived in Austin, Texas, we had huge Juneteenth celebrations. But from Governor Clements through Governor Mark White, uh, I worked on Juneteenth and was proud to do so. I worked with the governor staffing our Texas State Juneteenth celebration. So I want to welcome all of the rest of the Americans that don't know about this wonderful heritage of uh, us celebrating Juneteenth. I'm not cynical. I'm celebrating and I'm encouraging uh, everybody to celebrate. I think that we as African descended Americans understand that uh, America has written us a lot of checks that it hasn't cashed. Uh, Juneteenth was in 1865. I graduated from high school in 1965, 100 years later. I graduated from a segregated high school, although in 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that all of our schools should be integrated with all deliberate speed. So um, besides it being a wonderful day to celebrate freedom, because my ancestors weren't free, uh, you know, on July the 4th. Uh, and so the real aspect of freedom, too, is to participate in all of the the benefits of our government. So it's also marvelous that in here in 2021, we are celebrating a weekend of action. Uh, Former First Lady Michelle Obama with her When We All Vote uh, organization said, do it, so we're doing it. And we're encouraging people all over the United States as you celebrate Juneteenth to register people to vote. And in Texas, we really need to do that before it becomes illegal. Well, Linda, I just got to tell you, we're going to replay the show we recorded last year we go into detail about the history of the Stroud Plantation and your family and Juneteenth. And we're really looking forward to rerunning that show. And uh, just want to thank you and, and congratulate you and all of the American people for s- establishing this holiday. Juneteenth is June 19th. It's coming up. And uh, happy Juneteenth, Linda Jan. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. And I always like to remind Americans that Juneteenth didn't just free the slaves. It freed the slaveholders. They Mm. didn't have to watch us. (laughs) (laughs) They were free too. You know, we had a tacky habit of trying to run away and have (laughs) mutinies and stuff. You know, my ancestors said said we were not happy slaves, but it did. It freed the slave as well as a slaveholder. And I we I am so excited that. Now that it's a national holiday, it will free our information and our history. Beautifully, beautifully said. Amen to that. Thank you very much, Linda. Hope everyone enjoys this great show from one year ago on Juneteenth. Okay, Uh, this is one of my adventures for being uh, at the University of Texas in the 1960s. Um, I registered for classes this summer, August of 1965. 
freshman orientation, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act that summer, so I registered for to vote, and I also joined the University of Texas NAACP because I knew about the famous sweat versus painter lawsuit that allowed uh, African Americans to attend UT. And I also joined the UT Young Democrats. Linda, what year was Sweat v. Painter? Sweat v. Painter was actually decided in the summer of 1950. It worked its way up to the Supreme Court from 1946 or 7. And because the Texas legislature only meets every other year, in their wisdom, while they were uh, waiting and thinking they were going to win, they established a law school. Uh, at Texas Southern University. That's how we got Thurgood Marshall Law School in Texas. So keep going in your story, yeah. sorry. Yes, so Sweat versus Painter was actually the template for Brown versus Board of Education. Right. 1954, with all deliberate sco- speed, uh, schools should be integrated. Well, I grew up in Waco, Texas, Heartland, or as I call it, the Vatican City of Baptist because of Baylor University and uh, folks. Uh, I graduated from a segregated high school in 1965, so uh, we didn't believe it in Waco. Um, hmm. uh, integration or desegregation was slow to come uh, to parts of Texas. Um, because I knew my family history, I was acutely aware of the fact that I graduated from a segregated high school 100 years after the end of slavery uh, for Texas citizens because although uh, just like Brown versus Board of Education, Abraham Lincoln signed the proclamation on New Year's Eve uh, 1863. That's why black churches still have watch night celebrations. They were gathered at their churches waiting to be freed and uh, in Texas we didn't, it took the Union armies to come in and enforce it two and a half years so that the farmers could get in, you know, two and a half more years of crops and service. Um, so I have an acute awareness of the history of my family, my people in Texas, and what we've contributed to Texas. Um, one of my ancestors was a couple of them, but at least one that I know about a lot, was a member of the Texas legislature during Reconstruction. Um, that period between, it didn't last very long, 1865. By 1878 or 9, it was over. But uh, black men were elected to the Texas legislature, and they were my ancestors from the Stroud Plantation. So, uh, Linda Jan Lewis, just for the benefit of the listeners out there, Linda is a distinguished guest here on on, uh, Friday Happy Hour for Juneteenth. And uh, just a little about her background. Graduated 100 years, as you said, from high school, 100 years after uh, the freedom of slaves in the state of Texas. Uh, Graduated from... a segregated high school in 1965, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, right? So it, <laughs> as you said, 
didn't happen quickly. Uh, entered UT in the fall of 1965, just after uh, really black students really started to show up at the university in Austin, Texas. Uh, and an amazing career, Linda. And uh, Linda, I've known Linda for a long time and uh, one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever met. Uh, but founded, helped found KAJI uh, Radio here in Austin, Texas, which is a co-op radio station, served on the board for many years. Uh, a radio station, I understand, Linda, that LBJ had a part in. Yes. Um, Founding. That's, yeah, that's part of my 1960s, 70s activism in Austin. I tell people that I was in Austin, Texas at the magic time. So I'm going to stop you and brag about it. Go ahead. It's K-A-Z-I-F-M dot org. <laughs> you can get it anywhere in the world. So uh, the University of Texas hired a distinguished professor, and he had tenure, Dr. John Warfield. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, that was the first revolution, young people. Um, we were looking at media, community access in media for women, for Hispanics, for African Americans, for Native Americans. And every year, every seven years, the FCC grants a license to the radio and television stations. And they have to have a public file that shows you their EEO, Equal Employment Opportunity Stats. And... Uh, Dr. Warfield and a student figured out, we formed an organization called the Austin Black Media Coalition, and we had an, uh, an umbrella organization with the Brown Berets, with uh, you know the Women's Equity Action League, and we just went to the different television and radio stations in Austin, Texas, the liberal part of Texas, and said, we'd like to see your EEO4 file knowing that they had not hired any black or Hispanics <laughs> or women in positions. And we just said, you know, we are going to file a complaint with the FCC and tell them to hold up your license until you do follow the law. Um, that process lasted for many years. It is actually the granddaddy of Austin's public access channel. But the uh, black group got together and formed K-A-Z-I radio, Kazi, it means work in Swahili, and it was work. Um, we went to the LBJ, the LBJ's own property, community communications property in, in Austin, KLBJ radio, and they owned the, a television station. And uh, as a result of those negotiations, the LBJ Foundation uh, granted KZI $1,000, I think, until perpetuity a year. Uh, it's an excellent station. You can get it on TuneIn. And I I know that it was instrumental in changing the political face of Austin because it's a community radio station that's one of six African-American, uh, non-commercial, and not tied to a university. The station has been run since 1982 on mostly volunteers. They may have three paid staff. Uh, and it's the heart and soul of Austin. And I was privileged to uh, be the board secretary, the board president, the, a DJ for a decade, and we set up a news department. Tell I just, so we have a real 
radio professional among us, Peter. I think uh, our, our first amateur uh, <laughs> uh, podcasters. So, uh, do you have any any stories or recollections of what it was like to be behind the microphone for those ten years? Absolutely. Uh, you know, you have to be a little different to sit in the room the size of a closet and talk to yourself for three hours and imagine people are listening. Uh, you have to have a certain <laughs> ego and you have to know music. I grew up in segregated Waco, Texas, yeah. and Chitlin Circuit, and I knew the music. So uh, for 10 years, I had a show called The Way We Were, and I just played the music from my childhood, from the... 50s, 60s, and 70s. What's the Chitlin circuit? Uh, There were little clubs around the United States during segregation where black performers performed, uh, and it was called the Chitlin circuit. For Mm -hmm. instance, in Waco, Texas, there was Walker's Auditorium, and so uh, you could see Bobby Blue Band, B.B. King, and I and Tina Turner for $2. In fact, people stopped going when they raised the price to $2.50. Uh, But uh, clubs throughout the South, that's where our talent grew until, you know, we got discovered. Ray Charles was on the Chitlin Circuit, of course, as were all the great black musicians back in the days of segregation. And here in Austin, Texas, the Victory Grill, right, was on the the, Chitlin Circuit, which was was a black performance club here in Austin, still exists. has Tell it? us t- yes. now. You've got some connections to the yes to the Victory Grill. So the just amazing Eva June Lindsay, um, his father was a friend with Johnny Holmes, who was a veteran who came back and said he wanted to start a little club. We called them Juke Joints uh, Club because uh, the black soldiers were going to be coming back from World War II, and he wanted them to have a place to celebrate the victory. So he was gonna, and they said, what are you gonna name it? And he said, I think I'll name it Victory. So in the huh. heart of East Austin on East 11th Street, there's a Victory Grill. It's had, he opened it on VJ Day. Eva Lindsay's father was his buddy and the electrician and worked on the thriving businesses in segregated East Austin. But, you know, the Victory Grill was there for a while and so of course, Austin students and UT folk came. Janis Joplin used to come sing there. Uh, you know, uh, it's been existing for forever. Eva has gotten it a national historic designation. So even with the gentrification, they can't tear the Victory Grill down. The huh. Victory Grill and the Apollo Theater in uh, New York are the only two Chitlin Circuit clubs that have national historic designation. So wow, they'll be there. Well, we have some folks in D.C. who are pretty nerdy and uh, policy-oriented. I don't know if we can... Maybe there's more of these things we can uh, preserve. It seems like it would be worthwhile. Um, Obviously, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Linda is a historian and a communicator and someone that uh, we're really excited to learn from today. Learn about history, learn about experience and learn about Juneteenth, Peter, which uh, I mentioned on our show uh, a week ago that, you know, I had never, Linda, heard of Juneteenth. I'm from California. (laughs) And then I lived in Washington, D.C. and New Hampshire and back to California. And then I came to Texas and I learned about Juneteenth. Juneteenth. I never knew it was a, a, a holiday. I didn't know what it meant. 
It had a weird name from from like an, an outsider. <laughs> and so I I imagine by this point, uh, our audience is probably familiar with Juneteenth. But let, would you do us the honor I of will. just explaining I what will. it is? I will. So Juneteenth is uh, what we call the 19th of June. Uh, as I said a little earlier, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. New Year's Eve, uh, January uh, 1863. But in Texas, General Granger landed at Galveston Island and read at the general orders, freeing slaves in Texas. And, you know, it's kind of like Brown versus Road of Education. The law may pass, but it takes a while to implement it. So up until then, slaves in Texas were still slaves. They didn't know. You know, nobody told them. Um, so June 19th, 1865 is when slaves in Texas were freed. Gen the, the historians know about General Granger on Galveston Island, but also my family at the Stroud Plantation, my ancestors. Uh, my connection to Juneteenth has also appeared in my career. I worked for Texas Governor Bill Clements. He was the first Republican governor elected in Texas in 100 years since Reconstruction. And he was elected in uh, 1979. Uh, there was a Texas black uh, legislator, Al Edwards, who tried to get a bill passed uh, to make Juneteenth a state holiday. And so Governor Clements, the first Republican governor in 100 years, was in office when the bill passed the legislature and he signed the bill. Uh, the Texas legislature only meets once every other year on odd number years. It's to protect us, I think. But anyway, um, <laughs> so in, 18, in 1981, I was uh, one of a few black people on Governor Clement's staff, and we had a huge Juneteenth celebration and commemoration at the Texas Capitol, and of course recognized, uh, you know, Representative Al Edwards. And black people all over Texas were having barbecues and parties in the park. And, you know, uh, I'd been going to Juneteenth in Rosewood Park, but uh, I had to work on Juneteenth when I worked for all the governors because the people in Austin would have some ceremony <laughs> in the morning. And I didn't get to the park until the afternoon. And the biggest part of Juneteenth in my memory is the food, is the... Uh, red soda water and the watermelon and the um, all of that. So I want to talk to you some about the, the food and oh, about yeah. growing up. So in Mahia, Texas, uh, which is in Limestone County, not far from Waco, like 50 miles from Waco, Texas, uh, there's a place called Comanche Crossing. It's on Lake Mahia, and it's where my ancestors were freed. And the, some of the slaves had earned money uh, from being uh, contracted out, the freed slaves. And they bought land there, beautiful acreage on Lake Maya called Comanche Crossing. And so from as far as then up until now, up, there's a celebration on that ancestral land. Uh, I would go with my grandmother. We'd go to uh, Alice Cotton Teal's house. It was one of, quote, big houses from the plantation. 
with the huge front porch. The women and the people who lived close around would come early and shuck corn and peel field peas and make cakes and pies and good potato salad, y'all. You know, black mm-hmm. folk potato salad. And the men would fish, um, you know, leading up to Juneteenth, June the 19th. Mm-hmm. And they'd have big iron kettles and they would fry fish fresh out the lake or they would barbecue or whatever. It was, um, in my childhood, it was just the most amazing place because the edict had gone out that if you are a descendant of the Stroud Plantation, you should come back every Juneteenth and be with your people. A huge gathering, hundreds of people. And so I met cousins from California, from both LA area and from San Francisco and from Chicago and from Louisiana and Detroit and Washington, D.C. The Stroud Plantation uh, kids would come back uh, with their children and their families for years. Um, When I went to UT to college in the 60s, um, I didn't go as often, uh, but uh, it was a pleasure to do that. So this was the plantation your great-great-great-grandparents Amanda and Silas were enslaved on on the Stroud Plantation. On the Stroud Plantation. I know their names because I learned the family history. So Amanda and Silas Giddings, he was known as Yak. And um, the plantation was so huge that the family name is Giddings. If I get any cousins out there, if you're Giddings, we're cousins, okay? Um, They were at Highway 6 going through Central Texas, on the way to Texas A&M, there's a town called Calvert, Texas. A lot of famous people from Calvert, Texas. You know, uh, Mayor Bradley from um, the mayor of Los Angeles. Mm. Yeah, just a lot of famous people from Calvert. But anyway, um, that was the area of the plantation, which was so huge. And the plantation was there before Texas became a state. That When Texas became a state, the Stroud Plantation was cut up into four counties, uh, Freestone. Wow. Yes. That's uh, epic. Freestone County, Limestone County, Robertson County. Uh, Freestone County is where Wortham is, where the blind musician is. And then Limestone is Mahaya, where Comanche Crossing, and uh, Lake Mahaya, where the, the celebration is. Uh, in 1921, they dedicated... Booker T. Washington Emancipation Park, and that's when they put up the juke joint on upstairs, juke joint with the food stands down, and then across the church house where you know the preaching and the singing and food and kids and horseshoes and people dressed up and was there um, for as long as they could, at least for a weekend. So I got a question, um, Linda, about the because uh one of the interesting things about juneteenth is that it commemorates the day that uh the this general i'm blanking on his name uh ranger ranger yeah that's right credit uh uh that he informs the enslaved people of texas that they are now free yes and I'm under the impression that from that moment on, Juneteenth was 
a special day for freed people. That and is that true? Absolutely. It was our Fourth of July. Yeah. Yeah. It was our Fourth of July, and it spread because people left Texas and spread everywhere. Uh, there's a huge Juneteenth celebration in Los Angeles. You know, there it it spread, but it it was we declared a Texas holiday in 1979, and um, it was the actual time. You know, I mean, Emancipation Day is January the first, 1863. Right. You know, the thing that's amazing about this is your family gathering on Juneteenth from all over the United States on the plantation where your family was enslaved. Yeah. I mean, well, Linda. They, they cared the land. They built the house, the big house. They, uh, you know. Um, one and they the, ended up owning this part in, in Mejia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Your family. My family. Bought this bought part of the plantation and well, still lives there now. And still lives there now. And also in Calvert, outside of Calvert, the shallow community. Uh, so let me just brag about my family names. Maybe some yeah, cousins for sure. are listening. So Amanda and Silas Giddings were the people that were enslaved. And they had a son, John Giddings, who married Katie McCullough. When John Giddings was a boy, he and his brothers and his father corded wood, cut up wood, and sold it. Uh, the story is they sold it for 25 cents a cord, and they sold wood and bought the land on which they'd been previously enslaved. Um, off of Highway 6, those Texas A&M Aggies know what I'm talking about, on the way to Bryan College Station down the road from Waco. Hmm. Um, they brought the land there. And uh, they, uh, those Giddings, uh, they had cattle and they grew melons. Uh, the family, uh, the, the, it was a black community just off the highway called Shallow Community. So the family erected a church and a family graveyard. Those was my uh, great-grandparents uh, when they were adults. And they went to Fort Worth and hired them a school teacher. Her job was to run the colored school, <laughs> first through 12th grades, and to teach Sunday school. And the family cemeteries there also. Uh, it's, uh, like I said, in Robertson County near Calvert. My uh, great-grandmother, Katie McCullough, McCullough Giddings and John Giddings are buried there. And... Uh, in addition to Juneteenth, that little segment of the family would gather the first Sunday in August and uh, just have a weekend uh, church. It was an excuse for us to have good barbecue and potato salad and church service, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and have some fun. <laughs> and have some fun and, and, and get to know your cousins, get to know your people. Um, because the Stroud Plantation had over 107 uh, over a hundred and some slaves. Uh, the just the progeny is huge, so it was important for us to know who our people were. You know? How yeah. many? What would be when you had when Juneteenth celebrations? Uh, Ten people, twenty? How many? Um, the family members coming back. Oh, 
at at uh, Booker T. Washington Park and in Mahaya, two or three hundred during my childhood. Yeah, wow. And for Juneteenth. Yeah, for Juneteenth. And even when we go to the Shiloh celebration in Calvert now, um, fifty to a hundred people. You know, we are. Uh, there are a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Linda, uh, it sounds like you described it as the 4th of July, Independence Day. That makes a lot of sense to me. It sounds a lot like Thanksgiving, too. I mean, this is, wasn't come in for the afternoon and leave. This was oh yeah, the depth of your family's history being celebrated. Absolutely. And, and getting to know, uh, you know, black people have lots of cousins you know cousins we don't even know how we're cousins but if your mother or your grandmother said that's your cousin that's your cousin right. so you get to know who they are and what they are doing you know my yeah. favorite cousin was the cousin from the Giddings cousin from New Orleans he'd been in the army and he lived in New Orleans and uh you know he'd bring crawfish to the Juneteenth celebration New Orleans crawfish to the Juneteenth celebration wow yeah, so, uh, you know, we're all over this country because we built it. So, um, and there was a tremendous uh, change in black culture with World War II because being in the military was a very good way to, to go from all you knew was the plantation or the small town, but to go all over the world. Um, and so... Uh, uh, sail to be in the Navy and to be in the Army or the Air Force. And of course, one of the most famous uh, World War II uh, veterans is Doris Miller, who graduated from the other black high school, A.J. Moore High School in Waco. Huh. And uh, so my friend's parents went to high school with him. And if I'm right, uh, Doris Miller was a general in the Air Force. No, sir. No, no, no. no. At the Do end of Doris her career? Miller, no, no. Doris Miller is the World War II Navy guy who was a cook. Oh, uh, was a cook. oh that's and right. And he shot down, because he was a country boy and he knew how to use a gun. And he shot <laughs> He's down. a Texan after He's all. He's a Texan. Yeah. He grew up in Valley Mills, Texas, the same place that... Uh, Ambassador Lyndon Olson, shout out to Ambassador Lyndon Olson, who was Bill Clinton's uh, uh, ambassador to Sweden. But anyway, he grew up in the country, in Valley Mills, and the country kids came to town to Waco to go to A.J. Moore High School, so Doris Miller was in the Navy. He was a cook. He he was a mess, mess man uh, right. in the Navy. But during the attack on Pearl Harbor, he, he'd never been allowed to use a gun. This is, you know, real segregation people. Yeah. And so uh, the captain was hit. He went and moved the captain to safety, and he got on the gunner because he was a country boy. You know, and country boys uh, knew how to shoot. My dad was in the Army. He taught us how to shoot guns. And we grew up with Dad taking boys, unofficial Boy Scouts, taking my brothers to shoot rabbits and squirrels and... So it was, it was the times. The was he was he awarded the Medal of Honor? Was he Medal of Honor? And there's a huge uh, statue of him now in Waco, Texas, along the Brazos River, looking out of the hull of a ship. It took us uh, several years to raise the money, but um, 
he was part of, you know, part of who I knew. I, his mother uh, lived in a neighborhood in town where I could walk to it. Her thing was, as white folk are calling him Doria, I named him Doris. <laughs> Doris Miller. Um, and when he came home from the Navy, you know, he eventually died in another attack and ship. But he's an actual hero of World War II. Um, when he came home, he would go to the Waco Juke Joints because he couldn't go to the white clubs. Wow. You know, that's... I, I Eventually, I want to shift this uh, discussion and talk about kind of Juneteenth today and Juneteenth tomorrow and what... Uh, what you, where you think we're at, where we're going. But before we move to the present and to the future, I would like to hear about how white people reacted, what your perception of like white reaction to Juneteenth was over the years and um, uh, what the pressure, you know, I'm just, I, I imagine that among, certainly down here in the South, Juneteenth is... Uh, was not welcomed. I, mean, I have to imagine it was, you know, I mean, surprisingly, <laughs> it was a mixed reaction uh-huh. because there are uh, white kids who went with black folk to Juneteenth celebrations because after slavery was ended, uh, there were still bl- black black women were the original nannies. We just didn't get paid for it. So, <laughs> I mean, so after, um, you know, black kids would, some black kids would come uh, with, with Juneteenth, uh, and it depended on where you were. Yeah. You know, if there were uh, parades and mis- celebrations, uh, and sometimes whites were involved in it. Uh, Stranger enough, in Waco, Texas, uh Juneteenth now is more of a political thing. And so we have, you know, political party folk and elected officials and all of that. But it's it's been recognized sporadically around Texas just because it, quote, is a state holiday and people get off work. I mean, in reality, uh, people usually do it the weekend that's closest to Juneteenth in case you can't get off work. I just want to be clear that like when you were a little girl and your family was having this epic family reunion around this holiday where you're gathering a week in advance and preparing meals, um, that this was, this was a black thing that this was not the white people were not doing the same thing. Not at all. On Juneteenth. No, not at all. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a come when you could get there. You know, I went with my grandparents because my parents were in town working. And they came, you know, with Saturday, the Saturday or the Sunday or whatever. It just depended. But you knew there was something going to be going on for several days. Yeah. And um, after it became, quote, a holiday or somewhere, you know, after the, 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 the second revolution in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, people in unions and secure jobs would demand a day off. I loved Juneteenth back in the good old days in Texas when uh, we had uh, a lot of uh, Democrats uh, in office during the heydays of Ann Richardson, Jim Hightower, and Gary Morrow. 
the black uh, state employees would have a Juneteenth celebration. So that was a good way for them to, you know, have good soul food all day long. <laughs> <laughs> They'd come to work for that. <laughs> you make some friends there. Make yeah. some friends, yes. Do you, uh, so Waco, the, the city of Waco, does not have the most stellar reputation <laughs> when it comes to race relations uh, in Texas. Uh, so when you were growing up or when your grandparents were growing up, uh, it, was there a parade that went through the town or was it in the black segregated part of the city and was there a point when it became something that the city would recognize and people uh, would line the streets in 2020 the juneteenth parade in waco still goes in the historic black community we don't cross the river <laughs> okay. so it's not on main street it's not and and waco had a historic black college paul quinn a m they moved to dallas in the early 1990s so you had a community with a, a an A and M college, probably a Baptist church on every other corner, strong A M E. We had the Church of God in Christ, uh, the Kojics. So the, you know, it's a huge. Uh, although it is the Vatican City of Baptists, it's a huge church place, and um, you know, East Waco is going through its 2020 gentrification. Uh, because of the silos and fixer-upper, but uh, I grew up in a totally black community, and I live on the property that my grandmother bought when my dad sent money home from World War II. Uh, my neighborhood is still 80% African-American. Um, so it just depends. You know, it depends on the city. It depends on the relationships between the blacks and whites. But, you know, Juneteenth was our 4th of July. And Frederick Douglass gave, you know, we go and recite the Frederick Douglass speech about what is your 4th of July to the Negro and have good food and good music and uh, all the things that we loved. Um, to have something that is self-defining that you control that is your own is to me what freedom is about. Um, it is my view at this point in the uh, autumn of my life that if in America, and especially in Texas, if we have the real conversation about miscegenation and quote, the mixing of the races, uh, you know, and all of that, uh, African Americans are those people, y'all. It wasn't just Barack Obama. We're all <laughs> get the DNA test and find out who Would you, you tell us. I, and I've heard you speak about this before, and it's really fascinating about about what race is in America and the intermixing of the races. Can you talk about that? Teach 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 us a little bit about that. Okay, so. Um, I'm definitely a 60s kid, and I got an excellent education both at the University of Texas and at Southwest Texas State, where LBJ graduated from. I don't care if they did change the name. So we sociologists know that race is an artificial construct. It was made up to capture people uh, from Africa. You know, if if uh, 
the looting was the continent. And um, there is um, the talented 10th in African-American society and culture. Uh, they were usually light-skinned because they were the biological children of the slave master. They were, although it was a crime to be put to death, if you could read and write, if you were a slave, they were the ones that were taught to read and write, uh, to, as we say, cipher, to count money and to do transactions. They were raised in the house as the house slaves with the master's children, their biological sisters and brothers. And we know race is an artificial construct because whatever, quote, race you belong to, we're all just different colors of a crayon. And in the South, in particular, if the child was uh, uh, by the master or the male slave owner looked very white, the master, the mother and the, and the child were sold off to another plantation in another state. Or uh, if they ran away to, for, for freedom, they could go to the North and pass for white. Um, I'd recommend everybody as we're trying to not be anti-racist. There's a brilliant movie and a brilliant book uh, called Devil in a Blue Dress that addresses that story. We really don't know. Uh, if you divide people on the basis of how they look, you really don't know their, quote, ethnic origin. We're one race. We're humans. And uh, actually, the miscegenation and the mixing of the races is probably what made us survive this long because we got the best genes from a lot of different cultures. Right. God. Well, that's Damn, very Linda. interesting. It's a powerful, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it is the most powerful issue in, in America is race and the history of the country, our relationship to race. It's the uh, topic of concern all over America today and in the last three weeks since the murder of George Floyd. Um, what was it like for you? I mean, would, can you tell us a little bit about your experience growing up and how you perceived and understood race in America? Okay. So I'm the oldest of six children lots of boys and because I was next door to my grandparents who Stride Plantation descendants Giddings uh, Rebecca Giddings married Harrison Lewis my grandfather Harrison Lewis was from Birmingham Alabama and he was a Garveyite and he was a, a, a black soldier in World War One, and uh I haven't verified it, but I looked at the pictures, and I think he was with Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. So Big Papa, as you know, as we call it, Big Papa uh, believed strongly in black self-sufficiency. He uh, did not allow my mother or my grandmother to leave, go across the river, and work for white women. He said that once your woman crossed the river, there's no, you lose control of what could happen to them. So Big Mama took in 
washing. And so the women had to bring their clothes to our house. And during the days of the um, 50s American bandstand, Big Mama took in uh, ironing for the rich Baylor folk and the Junior League of Waco, and she um, ironed all day. My mother had uh, her beauty shop at the house. So her customers were almost all black, but they came to the house where there was a beauty shop. I was the oldest, and so I had to corral my brothers and make sure that the house was uh, presentable. The living room was the waiting room. Um, Big Papa had a uh, fourth or fifth grade education, and we sold watermelons. The summer before I turned four, uh, my dad would go to Calvert and get watermelons, and we would sell watermelons. And you could get one watermelon for 35 cents or three watermelons for a, do for a dollar. And I was that kid that was probably a real nuisance. I wanted mm -hmm. to know and do everything. So the summer before I turned four in October, Big Papa said, girl, I need to teach you how to cipher. That was count money. Uh, so the summer... Uh, that summer, I learned how to count money. I love math because math for me was money. So I could sell you a watermelon for 35 cents and give you change. Big Papa had coffee cans with nickels, dimes, quarters. And so that was a real talent. I could count money. And the kids across the street from my house was the school for the colored. And the kids would have to pay for their books if they tore them up, they were they, when they got them, they were old because they got the books that the white kids had, but they had to pay for them. So Big Papa bought all their books at the end of the school year, you know, they were 50 cents or a quarter. So my grandfather taught me how to read. So uh, from the time I was about three until I got to elementary school, I had read all the high school, I had read the fun with Dick and Jane and all the books. I was to the fifth, you know, up through the sixth grade. He was a good teacher because it's worth noting you were the valedictorian in your high school class, and uh, there are some stellar. I just when I hear about your family and how successful, and just the amazing. He's a rough rider. The, Big Pop is I mean, a rough rider. The I mean, amazing accomplishments so cool. in education yeah. in your family are really stunning, and well, from your grandfather. Well, and and Big Pop is the reason I was a valedictorian. Our grandparents took me and the two uh, young older boys, the younger ones didn't do it, but they took us to pick cotton. I was the world's worst cotton picker. <laughs> I would have been one of those slaves they would have put to death. I didn't like getting up before the sunrise. I didn't like the bugs. I didn't like the heat. I didn't like the dirt. And I would just, but Big Papa said to us, you need to go to school and get an education. If you don't get any book learning, this is the work that a poor black person will do. I said, Big Papa, if I do good in school, and I was already in like, he, I was probably about eight or nine when he first took us. I was that smart, little smart aleck anyway. But he said, I said, so if I go to school and get an education, I don't have to pick cotton. And he would tell me, you're gonna be the first person in our family to go to college and graduate. Your mom, my grandmother's brothers went to Prairie View. They sold melons and went to Prairie View, which is an old Texas land grant, excellent mm. university here uh, in Texas. 
Uh, but she, he said, you're going to be the first Lewis to go to college. So if I just make A's, I don't have to pick cotton anymore. So I made straight A's. That was uh, pick cotton, make A's. <laughs> Funny thing, incentive seems to work, doesn't it? It does. That was an incentive. Um, so I was a prin- oh, I was a princess and a diva, because in the black community, uh, you know, there there was a promotion for excellence, and that education was the equalizer. That yes, there's racism. Yes, you got to be twice as smart and make work twice as hard and it's not going to be fair but education is the equalizer and our high school chemistry teacher came to the University of Texas and got his master's in chemistry on his GI Bill because he was a captain in the army so he handpicked me in the salutatorian and uh, seventh grade started telling us about UT Austin and prepared us um uh, there is no question in my life and experience that the richness and the genius of America has been uh, not recognized and thrown away because of racism. You know, just because of racism. And um, we have to fix it uh, because I think the pandem- worldwide pandemic is changing uh, how we uh, communicate and how we deal with one another. And we're beginning to see it. I'm so uh, optimistic and happy that it's happening. So, you know, before the interview, I was driving over t- to uh, the studio to do the show. And uh, Linda said to me, she was wearing a mask, and she handed me one, too. And she said, I, I do not intend to get COVID-19. It's just getting good right now. Uh, can, you <laughs> can you talk about what you're seeing in America today? Well, coming from somebody who, um, you know, was at UT, UT during the anti-war years and the 60s and uh, you know, I'm a veteran of uh, Burn Baby Burn and Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition and uh, Jesse Jackson uh, changed America. He's more uh, recognized in Africa and here than, and people changed. But what Jesse did was, if you look at the women the African Americans, the Hispanics who were elected to office uh, in local positions, they were part of the rainbow. They were 1984, 1988, they were part of the rainbow. When, in the uh, words of Shirley Chisholm, we took us some folding chairs to the table and dealt in the game. And so that legacy of uh, young people, and I loved being in Austin, Texas, in the 70s when Mickey Leland and Craig Washington and Barbara Jordan and Sam Hudson and Paul Ragsdale and I'll forget somebody, Sinfronia Thompson and Eddie Bernice Johnson and Wilhelmina Delco were in the Texas legislature because 
they hired, mentored, brought people along that are now doing amazing things. And just like any other uh, profession, because politics is one, uh, once the doors are open and we're in the game, then the game changes. Once we have more women, once we have more gay people, once we have uh, more Native Americans, once we have more Asians, then they tell, they bring their story, their perspective, uh, their view into public policy. And so if we're going to be what we claim we are in this, quote, participatory democracy, it's got to look like, sound like, and act like all of us. Uh, my grandmother was so proud of my activism in politics, and she gave me my inspirational margin order. She said she loved Election Day because that was the one day in America when a poor black woman was equal to a rich white man. It was a day when we were all equal. And so I was that kid to ask because my life uh, was a pattern of those uh, four girls that were killed in the church in Birmingham. It affected me deeply. Um, because I was my Sunday school secretary and I went to Sunday school and then I went to change to be in the junior choir. So it could have been me. I had nightmares for months and I kept asking, why did they kill those kids? You know, Angela Davis was in Birmingham and was a friend of those kids and I've gotten to uh, be in Angela's presence and have conversations with her sometimes. And the answer I got from my parents, my grandparents, my school teachers, was because that church was active in getting people to vote. Why would you kill little children? Because they're trying to get black people the right to vote. And so being that kind of kid, uh, it seemed to me that voting was something really powerful. If they're willing to kill folk to keep you from doing it. Uh, and so being Involved in voting became my superpower. It's my way of, I guess, trying to bring back those four little girls that could have been me. You know, that stitches something together for me, Linda, because you were the first black election administrator in, in te Texas. Tell us about that. <laughs> um, and there's a connection with Juneteenth. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I was raised in a generation of black parents that said in Waco, we're going to try to provide you with the best education that you, we can afford. I want you to go to college, get a good education, and soar. Do whatever you can do. And I love Austin, Texas. It's my planet. I was involved in a lot of politics in Austin. But... In 1991, I went back to Waco. My dad had cancer, and I went home to see about him. And in 1992, I got another job. I was hired as McLennan County, Waco, Texas, elections administrator, because it was a dual job. It was elections administrator and personnel director. You know, we've involved to HR, but election administrator, personnel director. And most of the things I'd done in my life sort of came together because 
when I worked for both Governor Clements and Governor Mark White, one of the agencies that it was my responsibility to uh, be the governor's representative and liaison on the Secretary of State's budget and its uh, laws and election laws. So I was frequently uh, one of the few black people in the room for eight years watching election law, and I loved it. It was my thing. So uh, I was hired in August of 1992 as Texas' first and only uh, African-American elections administrator. I presided over the election in McLennan County where Bill Clinton uh, won the presidency, and I met Bill and Hillary when they were um, working for McGovern. Um, I lasted four years. We had East Slate equipment. Uh, beware of East Slate equipment. Um, so in the primary election in March of 1996, uh, we gave out a wrong report. We made I made an error. We made an error, me and my staff, and we reported the wrong election results. So in their wisdom, the McLennan County County Commissioners fired me on Juneteenth, 1996, and I embraced that bragging rights, and I challenged all of the spokesperson for Black Lives Matters and black folk in America, call me if you were fired on Juneteenth. Well, that's a big one. Now, Peter, uh, uh, our network is coastal. This show is uh, universal. Um, so it's close, coast included, but Linda, you're on, you're on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, about your relationship with coastlines, but I'm going to frame it up a little differently because yeah, beaches, beaches, coastlines, <laughs> um, you know, uh, if you grew up going to the beach, uh, if were you going with your grandparents and what was that like? Which beaches did you go to? I'm curious about all of it. Okay. So we had the Brazos River and we had Bledsoe Miller Park on the east side of the Brazos River. So I actually learned how to swim in a swimming pool at the Bledsoe Miller Park. Um, we were more fishing people. Yeah. So we went to the lakes around in the beaches in Waco. Waco, Texas is a beautiful Lake Waco made by the... Uh, Corps of Engineers. So when I was in college, it was a, a cool thing to come home to Waco, like, you know, required times, Mother's Day or whatever. And we, we'd go and integrate Lake Waco in the 60s. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> go out. It was beautiful, you know, the, the beaches. You know, there's this story uh, about black folk being afraid of water. It's not that. We came over in the ships and you know if you acted out they threw you behind in the Atlantic Ocean and I think there is some past life I uh, because I've been a government bureaucrat I've worked for um, FEMA as a public uh, Texas FEMA uh, especially uh, during the floods and um, so I have just an incredible appreciation for Texas coastline for Padre Island. The first time I saw Padre Island, I was just enthralled. You know, my attitude is that the Europeans were really wrong for coming over here and taking this land. But 
you know, on the other hand, they stole paradise and I live here. So <laughs> yeah. my values. Yeah. Uh, and they're just magic places in Texas. Yeah. Uh, uh, mine, uh, my favorite would be Padre Island um, along the Texas coast going toward Mexico. Um, and um, Cancun. I've, I've been to Cancun, which is, you know, Texas is Mexico. Right. Um, Just down the way, a little bit further. To, yeah. In fact, uh, there's a Cancun jazz festival and a bunch of folk from all over the country, but Texans and uh, a plane load of folk from Atlanta. Um, the uh, When we were at the University of Texas, uh, Part of the PE program was uh, you had to pass a swimming and a water uh, accuracy test. And uh, we found out years later that there was a graduate student working on her dissertation on the differences in the body mass and buoyancy of black versus white uh, bodies, female bodies. So just coincidentally, almost all the black girls uh, Freshman black girls at UT didn't pass the water test, so we had to take swimming. My mother was a black beautician. If you've seen Self Made, uh, that's how Linda Lewis got an afro at UT. There wasn't a black beautician on UT's campus in 1965, and I didn't have a car. And I had to take swimming twice a week. And so that's how I got an afro. <laughs> 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 and now, you know, uh, being the daughter of a black beautician, my hair has been any way that you can do black hair, and it's back to its natural uh, state. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, water does interact differently from our, with our hair, uh -huh. <laughs> the kinkiness. So, uh, you yeah. know. Linda, uh it's Juneteenth when this sh this show's coming out on Juneteenth. Recording it day a couple of days before, um, but I, I think it, I couldn't do a discussion with you about Juneteenth and race in America without asking you about what you're seeing in America now with the marches in cities all over <laughs> the country. Um, can you share your thoughts on all of that? All of that stuff. Yeah, um, you know, I consider myself a refugee from several revolutions that we were going to change America. Um, the winds that are blowing this time around are different, and I would just advise um, read things and Google things and do not react to um, social media. We know that our elections have been compromised. We know that. We know that there is worldwide, not only interest, but money in who gets elected to office in the United States of America in 2020. And so I would say to especially the folk who have the opportunity to live along the beautiful coastlines that um, I do believe that 
uh, we are full into the age of Aquarius. We have not been good shepherds of Mother Earth, so she's trying to regurgitate us. We need to clean this mess up, the carbon footprint. Um, we are so spoiled in consumerism and throwing away stuff, and it's killing the Earth. Uh, American economy is built on consuming, and we have to change. Education has to change. Um, folk that, you know, are all upset about um, LGBTQ rights and uh, women's rights. Uh, it's what has to happen in order for us to survive, not only in this country, but around the world. So get over it and do your part to make it better. And if you don't vote, you're contip you are contributing to the catastrophe that's uh, really serious about having an oligarch and a different kind of government. And I haven't lived this long, protested, picketed, begged people to vote for that to happen. Uh, we're all in this together and we can all do our part and it'll work. Wow. Yeah. Well, Linda, you know, what I love about having known you and, and talked to you so much, so much is the richness of the experience that you bring uh, to the table in any discussion about this country. Um, you're an incredible historian, and we have, I promise you folks, scratched the surface of the story that this woman has lived. It's really amazing working for governors. You mentioned Bill Clements and Governor Mark White. Uh, you also worked for the most powerful lieutenant governor the state of Texas has ever had, Lieutenant, Bob Bull, uh, uh, lieutenant Governor Bob Bullock. Uh, the Texas History Museum is named for Bob Bullock. He's, it was that big of a deal. Uh, but you had an amazing and remarkable life. And uh, I really just want to say thank you for talking to us about this subject. Yes, well, you know, we've talked about Bob Bullock, who dominated Texas government for 40 years. But then we have to talk about my sister friend, Molly Ivins. Uh, uh, Peter is, is being modest here. We're, we're in a little group called um, the Democracy Foundation. And uh, awards are given every year. Molly Ivins Journalism Award. Here's some more homework. Everybody out there, it's cheap. You can get it on Amazon and Hulu. You must watch. This is something else you can do. You must watch Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. And it's, the kids need to watch it. You need to watch it. You need to watch it with your grandparents. Uh, it's going to help you be anti-racist and help you do good stuff. Um, yes, I, I, Bob Bullock, in my opinion, started uh, Democratic Camelot in Texas, and he mentored and hired and fired so many people uh, and was a powerhouse in Texas government when he won uh, state controller in 1975, and then he went on to be lieutenant governor and his uh, progeny is all over Texas government everywhere. 
He kind of went to the dark side a little when he mentored uh, George W. Bush when he was governor of Texas. But the way I look at it is Texas would have been much worse if W. wasn't listening to Bob Bullock. So it's a good thing. A legacy. (laughs) It's a legacy. You know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, one of the things that I have learned, if you are not a Texan, um, Texas politics is like a it's a creature of its of its own thing and uh, I've had the pleasure of getting to know some of it uh, we talk a little bit about about yeah we t- do it's I mean it's just Unavoidable, it's, it's a it's a it's a hit Texas politics is like a really it's as you might guess really big characters you know it's it's very on brand and it yeah. lives up to the to what you would expect which is uh to say it's very good well and it's it's coastal too to link it it is you know the texas land commission there's a coastal connection we're we're trying the texas land commissioner is elected in texas statewide he's the (laughs) runs the submerged lands of texas the general he or she so far it's all been he's there haven't been any she's in the texas uh, land commissioner's seat yet uh but uh the submerged land to Texas gives the agency the responsibility for coastal management in Texas. So it's, you can't avoid politics when you talk. In fact, when you talk about coastal issues and the allocation of resources and economic interests along the waterways and the coastlines of America. Yeah. We you, talk about the California coast commission. That's, you're that's squarely a, and deeply in American politics. We talk, I mean, it's all in fact, Grover, uh, Fugate, uh, just on yeah. Wednesday talked, was talking about, uh, how he was navigating the political uh, that balance uh, in his state, albeit compared to Texas, uh, Rhode Island's a, a, a little puny guy. That's true. Now, Lynn and I have a do have a shared some shared crossover background in politics. When I worked for Gary Morrow, who was the land commissioner and the last Democrat who's held that, held that seat, uh, Linda, can you you got to do at least one Gary story? For us, one Gary Morrow story. <laughs> Hello, Gary. We're uh, we'll, uh, Gary. Hope to hope you're doing well. Shout out to Gary Morrow. So, 1975, Bob Bullock becomes the 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 Texas State Comptroller. He had 46 field offices and uh, a young staff. Uh, Gary Morrow was. The, very bright. It was just, just obvious he was very bright. Bob Bullock uh, found out that there were businesses all over Texas that uh, were not collecting the sales tax or they were collecting it and keeping it. So he created a group called Bob Bullock's Raiders. Gary Morrow was the leader. And we went all over Texas uh, closing down businesses. You'd go in with the the local law enforcement and you'd actually padlock the business and close it down if they were and they were behind sometimes for years on their on their taxes so Gary Morrow was the leader of the Raiders and because Bob Bullock was just uh, the godfather of Texas politics and Texas budgets the state comptroller's office had. You see what I mean about Texas politics. Texas politics. Bob Bullock's Raiders. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we had a uh, uh, we had a Thunderbolt uh, logo. We had uh, you know in order to and this was in the years when you know I had an Afro and an attitude. Um, 
And so we flew in the comptroller's plane to Houston, Texas, and we're going to close down this business. And I'm just basically that, that, that kid. I'm nosy. I want to know. So we're in a storage warehouse. And we're telling the woman, this is the, you know, we came to close you down, and it's me, and I'm the only woman, and the only black person, and it's Gary Morrow, and it's, you know, the staff and the local folk. And I'm standing next to her desk, and she says, okay, let me get my things, and she opens her drawer, and she pulls out a big gun, and I'm going... In my mind, oh God, I'm gonna die. My mother's gonna be mad. And Gary Morrow says that's the one time that he saw a black person blush. He said, I turned a different color. But there was no, you know, she got a gun, put it in her purse, left, and, you know, we, we closed down businesses until they paid up the sales tax. And the businesses uh, then became more respectful of Texas sales tax and the sales tax money goes to fund good stuff in Texas. Indeed, I think it's the biggest single source of revenue for Texas. It is. And one of the reasons we're gonna have a tough uh, budget in the state next year because of the decline in consumer uh, spending this year and the decline in the oil industry anyway. But Linda, uh, it's a good thing it's digital because we could you know we could do days we really could do days and and but to have you on uh for our first ever uh acknowledgement and commemoration of juneteenth on the american shoreline podcast is really just super cool and a real gift to us and our listeners so thank you for just welcoming us into the world you lived in and the importance of this event in your life and why it mattered. It's really super great. Well, freedom's a good thing. And however you can celebrate it, you should. Thank you very much, Linda.